welcome to chapter 119 of History of England. I'm David Beeson, inviting you to join me in wrapping up the Crimean War and losing a government on the way. The bitter and murderous siege of Sevastopol was consuming British, French, Russian and Turkish lives in Crimea. To them, quite soon would be added Italian lives. Victor Emmanuel, the King of Piedmont, was keen on uniting the whole of Italy into a single kingdom, under his rule, of course, and he knew he was going to need French help. He decided it might be a politically smart move to send some of his own troops to fight alongside the French in Crimea. In the end, there were 21,000 of them, and 10% of them died there. The war was a long way away, but that didn't mean the Brits didn't know about it. With correspondents reporting from the front line, some of them photographers, the horror of what was going on was pretty widely shared with the British public. As so often happens in war, everyone had imagined that the fighting would be over in a matter of days, with victory quickly and cheaply secured. Just like Russia in Ukraine in our own times. Of course, that might have been the case had the Allies moved quickly on Sevastopol after winning the Battle of the Alma, but they blew that. One of the problems about expecting a quick win is that you don't prepare for a long war. The British went to war with Russia with summer kit only. Shades of Napoleon in 1812 and Hitler in 1941. What's more, medical care was hopeless. In the first year, the French were better. They had proper winter clothing and shelter for the soldiers, and field hospitals with adequate staffing. This was a war where disease was a far greater killer than combat. In the first winter of the war, because yes, there were two, so much for a quick win, the French lost far fewer soldiers to disease than the British did. In the second winter, however, the positions reversed. The French rather lost the plot, and failed to provide for the men as well as they had a year earlier. And the British had at last provided proper winter kit, shelter in which to withstand the cold, and above all, hugely improved medical care. That was to a great extent due to the constant reports flowing back home. They provided accounts of men left to die from their wounds on the battlefield, of men laid low by insufficient food and the cold, followed by inadequate medical treatment, and of the shortage of medical staff in the hospitals as well as the insanitary conditions in many of them. If those problems were finally addressed, that was down, above all, to two remarkable women, two nurses, Mary Seacole and Florence Nightingale. Their role was so significant, however, that they deserved their own episode. I'll talk about them next week. Meanwhile, in British government circles, life generally went on as before. Do you remember this Rayleigh's caustic remark that England does not love coalitions? Well, members of the Aberdeen coalition didn't even like each other very much. The Prime Minister, Lord Aberdeen, was a Peelite, as were several other senior ministers. Now, the Peelites were arguably the more liberal wing of the Conservative Party, but they were still Conservatives and were seen that way. The two big beasts of the Whig or Liberal Party, serving in the Aberdeen coalition, were Lord Palmerston, ironically himself a former Tory from before the time they changed their name to Conservatives, and Lord John Russell. Russell, of course, had previously been Prime Minister himself. Few former Prime Ministers returned to government under someone else. Those who do have usually held the top office only briefly, and serve under another Prime Minister of their own party. 
Russell, on the other hand, had been Prime Minister for six years, and now, though a leading Liberal, was serving under a Conservative. He must have found that pretty galling. As for Palmerston, we've seen that he'd been dismissed from office by Russell. That kind of thing puts a bit of a chill on a relationship. Palmerston, who hadn't been Prime Minister, felt that his huge popularity around the country as the kind of man who backed an aggressive British foreign policy to make Johnny Foreigner sit up and take notice was propelling him that way. That meant he needed to emerge from the shadow of Russell, his former leader and boss. Russell proved remarkably, if unintentionally, helpful to him. We've mentioned before that he was something of a champion at threatening to resign. Aberdeen persuaded him to stay in government by giving him the opportunity to work for further electoral reform. We saw last time that Palmerston, who loathed the idea of further reform, took that initiative as an excellent pretext for resigning himself. This was before Britain had declared war on Russia, and his real aim was to get outside government to free himself from an attack on its stance, which was nothing like belligerent enough for his liking. He was back within ten days after Aberdeen agreed to the British fleet entering the Black Sea with a French, an aggressive move against Russia and a further step towards war. But in the meantime, Palmerston had also achieved the other aim of differentiating himself clearly from Russell. As 1854 rolled past and the war seemed to be going nowhere, Russell again started making noises about leaving the government. But he had a lousy sense of timing. He left his actual departure to the worst possible moment. On the 29th of January 1855, a radical MP, John Roebuck, proposed a motion to the Commons to set up a committee to inquire into the conduct of the war. That was tantamount to a proposed vote of no confidence in the government. That's when Russell decided to resign, so that he could abstain on the motion, rather than feel he had to back the government. That did, however, look rather like treachery towards his government colleagues. The government lost the vote. Aberdeen felt he had no choice but to resign. The ungainly coalition fell. So it was time for a new government. Exciting for us mere spectators to the process. Painful for the participants. There were several possibilities. Oddly, all of them had one man in common. William Gladstone, the rising star of Parliament and still a Peelite Conservative, had emerged as a highly admired, and therefore highly sought-after, Chancellor of the Exchequer. The Earl of Derby from the main, anti-Peelite wing of the Conservatives had been Aberdeen's predecessor as Prime Minister. He tried to form another government, and Israeli, who'd been his Chancellor and leader of the House of Commons, generously agreed to stand aside from both posts, if Gladstone would take the first, and Palmerston the second. But neither was prepared to serve under Derby, who decided he couldn't build a government with any chance of lasting. Then Russell got another chance, and he too asked Gladstone to serve as Chancellor. But Gladstone again said no, and Russell's loss of credibility, after abandoning his previous government just when it needed his support most, meant few people liked the idea of his leading another administration. Next, the choice fell on Lord Lansdowne, who, astonishingly, first served in government nearly 40 years earlier. He and Gladstone had a pleasant chat, but once more Gladstone refused to serve under him as Chancellor 
and recommended he form a single-party Whig government instead, an unhelpful suggestion since Lansdowne had explicitly ruled out that option at the start of their discussion. All those failures and all those refusals only left one option, the one the Queen, and indeed Gladstone, liked least of all and a lot of people opposed. It had to be Palmerston. Poor old Gladstone, cornered by his own refusal to serve under any of the other possible Prime Ministers, found himself stuck in Palmerston's cabinet, along with four other Peelites. Though, as it happens, within three weeks he and two others had resigned. They didn't like the government's willingness to accept Roebuck's investigation of the previous government's conduct of the war, although it's also likely that Gladstone hadn't found his first three cabinet meetings under Palmerston particularly congenial. Palmerston, always quick to resort to war, was perhaps not the best place to end this one. And indeed it had a long way to go. Still, he'd have to see it through to its conclusion. And the mood was for peace. Nicholas I of Russia had died, and the new Tsar, his son Alexander II, was open to peace negotiations. Lord Raglan, commander-in-chief of the British forces in Crimea, had died there, as had Saint-Arnaud, the French commander. Public opinion, both in Britain and in France, was swinging against the war. When the Austrians invited the various parties to a peace conference in Vienna, Palmerston sent his newly appointed colonial secretary, even though the issue had nothing to do with colonies. And who was that colonial secretary? Why, our old friend John Russell again, now serving under the man, Palmerston, he'd previously dismissed. Despite the growing mood for peace, the Russians weren't prepared to concede that much. After all, Sevastopol still hadn't fallen to the Allies. How much could they seriously demand? When the conference broke up, Russell returned to London with a peace approach which he'd rather let the other participants believe Britain would accept, and which allowed Russia to maintain a fleet in the Black Sea. That really would mean that all that loss of life had achieved practically nothing. Peace was desirable, but not at any old price, and the possibility of signing any such peace treaty was rejected in both London and Paris. Why, even Russell himself refused to defend it in Cabinet, and spoke against it in Parliament, leading to some embarrassment when it emerged that he'd favoured it in Vienna. The opposition got ready to submit a vote of no confidence in Russell, only avoided when he resigned, something, as we've seen, that he was good at. Palmerston and Napoleon III in France wanted something that looked more like a victory. The armies had another go in June 1855 when they attacked two major redoubts defending Sevastopol, the French taking on the Malakoff and the British taking on the Redan. Both attacks failed. When they tried again, though, in September, the Malakoff at last fell to the French, though the British were again repelled from the Redan, underlining the fact that France, with more men in Crimea and more casualties, was the senior partner in the alliance. The Russians realised they could defend the city no further. They surrendered it to the besieging allies. The fighting was, at last, over. That still didn't mean the soldiers could go home, though. Having at last achieved the victory they sought, the two governments in Paris and London now felt they could extract tougher terms from Russia. 
That meant that they were going to inflict another miserable winter on their troops in Crimea. It was only on the 30th of March 1856 that the Treaty of Paris was finally signed. Terms were indeed tougher on the Russians than discussed in the Vienna negotiations, but they still fell far short of any ambition to bring Russia to its knees. Napoleon was in any case less keen than Palmerston on punishing the Russians. He decided that he would indeed help the campaign for Italian independence, not for free of course, France would get Savoy and the city of Nice in return, and that would mean driving the Austrians out of their possessions in the regions of Venice and Milan. Being able to count on Russia as a counterweight to Austria to the east while France attacked it in the west would be a great help. In the end, the treaty simply closed the Black Sea to warships and banned fortifications and armaments from its shores. That meant Russia would no longer have a Black Sea fleet. Russia also had to hand back some Turkish territory to the Ottomans, the first time they'd made such a concession since the 17th century. And they gave up on Moldavia and Wallachia, returned to Turkey, but with a high degree of independence. There was even one small win for Russia. Orthodox Christian control was returned over some of the holy places in Jerusalem, and the Tsar could crow that this was a victory, since it was, he claimed, what the whole war had really been about from the start. Incidentally, since Christians hadn't learned to behave any better, the fighting in the holy places between followers of Eastern and Western Christianity soon enough got going again. Overall, the conditions imposed on Russia and the Black Sea were humiliating, but they lasted a mere 17 years before its navy was allowed back. By 1878, Russia had even recovered the land it had had to hand back to Turkey. By then, all the Russian losses of the Crimean War had been reversed. For this, Britain, France, Piedmont and Russia had deployed nearly three quarters of a million men. Reliable figures for the Turks are not available. Over a fifth of them had died. What was particularly shameful was that two-thirds of the deaths were down to infectious diseases, not to combat. More shameful still, you may remember that the war cost Britain £70 million, while its famine relief to Ireland had only amounted to £10 million. How many more lives might have been saved had the money for the war been used in Ireland instead? And might that not have been a better way of spending it? With that thought, I'll leave things for this week, and just thank you for listening. (laughs) 